0: once again we welcome you to moving forward with young voices and we're very happy to welcome caleb franz back to the program caleb great to catch up with you once again
1: hey brian it's uh, good to be here always good to chat with you
0: i know some folks are meeting you for the first time so take just a moment here tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do
1: Absolutely. Uh, So my name is Caleb Franz. I am the program manager at Young Voices. Uh, It's a great job and uh, a great time to uh, be a part of the organization. We're constantly growing left and right, it seems. Uh, And I also host a show that is a history podcast called Profiles in Liberty that you and I uh, get to have the pleasure to, to speak about from time to time, uh, so it's it's always it's always fun to talk about that.
0: Absolutely, and of course, we're we're just coming off the Independence Day holiday, and uh, I know I don't know for for me this was kind of a different holiday. I don't know if it was for you, but Caleb, this is the first year that I can remember in my entire life. Where there was a little bit of a pall hanging over um, Independence Day, in other words, there wasn't quite the the fondness and the the sense of celebration that I once remembered. In fact, if anything, it seems like there was actually some open antagonism. Did you pick up on any of that where you were celebrating?
1: Uh, maybe not necessarily where I was celebrating, but certainly across the country, I uh, tend to agree with that. Uh, you know, even NPR that they they air uh, their reading of the Declaration of Independence every year, and this is the first time I believe in three decades, in over three decades. That they didn't do this, and instead, wow. they decided to have a conversation about what equality means uh, <laughs> in the United States. Uh, now, I think that that's a perfectly fine conversation to have, and, and potentially one that's uh, that's important to have. Um, but at the same time, uh, there there's got to be a reason for for nixing uh, the reading of the Declaration of Independence itself, the very document that gave. Uh, Gave our country new life Uh, and that I find to be a somewhat disturbing trend as we as we continue to move forward rejecting some of the notions of that founding era uh, that really made us unique the country.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at an article you wrote for RealClearHistory.com about uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's America worth celebrating, rather. And could we dwell for just a little bit on, on some of the things that, that are still worth celebrating that don't have to necessarily uh, be discarded in the name of, uh, you know, rewriting history or otherwise uh, uh, focusing on on whatever misgivings or shortcomings the uh, the founding generation might have had.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I think that the founding generation, uh, obviously, you know, we've, we we talk about this uh, frequently, uh, Brian, uh, of all the shortcomings that certain individuals throughout history may have had, but that isn't necessarily something that defines them as as people, and it's certainly not something that defines uh, us as a country. I think the defining quality of, of America is not how many problems that we have had, uh, but rather the ability for us to truly overcome those issues because we were conceived in this notion uh, of liberty, uh, which is so unique and so different and, and revolutionary at the time of, uh, of, of when it occurred. And I think that's something that it's, it's important to take pause and, and take a moment to reflect upon, uh, certainly around a holiday like, like Independence Day. Uh, and it's certainly not something that we should be rejecting.
0: So I have to ask: um, Is Thomas Jefferson a fair target? I know that there, you know, a couple of years ago we were seeing statues of him taken down. But uh, are, are there certain things about him that make him a fair target, regardless of how much time has gone by?
1: Yeah. So I, I think that um, it's it's always important to to look and evaluate at certain, I guess, heroes and and not just uh, not just simply accept. Uh, that uh, these people were good just because, especially in our public schooling system uh, in in past decades, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's good to just uh, blindly accept certain things. But I think Thomas Jefferson is someone who really deserves the uh, the credibility that we have long given to him. Um, and he is someone who I think that without him, uh, this whole idea, this whole American experiment uh, just would not have worked. Um, and obviously he had a lot of uh, a lot of problems uh, that he was aware of and that he dealt with and he tried to wrestle with. But I don't think those issues defined him. I think it was far more the ideas that liberty truly is for everyone. I don't think he was giving lip service to that. Uh, I think he, that he truly meant it. He didn't necessarily know what the best path forward for that was. But uh, giving enshrining that idea into our founding document, uh, making sure that we can eventually fulfill that promise of uh, all men being created equal, uh, is something that I think is, is one of the most important acts that any, any person has ever done in, in American history.
0: I know Jefferson gets a lot of heat for, for being part of the slave-owning class of his day. And, and, Caleb, it's it's troubling to me. Look, there there are things that uh, were part of the world he was born into. They didn't uh, originate with him. They didn't originate with the founding generation. They were widely accepted by that generation at that time or the, the ones who had come before them. But it seems like Jefferson himself had some pretty strong things to say about slavery, even if he didn't manage to, to ban it outright. How do we weigh him in light of the fact that, well, he didn't get rid of slavery, so therefore, you know, uh, I guess that would make him a bad man, as, as some people would say
1: yeah he 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 certainly had some some very strong opinions about this, and it's something that he he constantly struggled with, but it was one that, as far as the moral question of is slavery wrong or is it correct uh this was not this was not something that he struggled with in that sense. Uh, he knew it to be absolutely reprehensible and in fact, the story that I pull on for this uh, article that I wrote for Independence Day. Uh, pulls on uh, what he originally wrote in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, where he not only put slavery at the foot of the king, but it was the largest grievance in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence. Now, that is something that uh, I think is rather overlooked uh, whenever we discuss certainly Jefferson's legacy or the or the uh, heritage of, of the United States. Um, and it's an important one because it does tell us that slavery was never meant to be uh, an aspect of, of this country. Uh, and while there were some certain influences from the old world that still carried over into the new world as we uh, tried to establish our nation, it was very much a relic of that old world and not something meant to, uh, not something that was meant to, to create a new country on the, on the foundation of that institution.
0: So, even though there, there has been room for improvement, and I think we could safely say, some things have greatly been improved in, in our world. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you would say we could still celebrate? In fact, we ought to be celebrating in 2022.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, that the idea of America is still very much worth celebrating. And more specifically, I think Thomas Jefferson and, and his ideas that he, he put forth specifically in the Declaration of Independence especially in the declaration of independence that he originally wrote uh, the first draft of that document is uh, something that we should all uh, take to heart as americans because that is an america that is in fact worth celebrating
0: agreed yeah i mean look i'm i'm not saying that everybody needs to hold hand and sing hold hands and sing patriotic songs but it, it sometimes feels like there's this effort to throw the baby and the bathwater out together, and, and basically all the good <laughs> things that, that came from the founding generation are somehow supposed to be disregarded in light of a new, uh, you know more enlightened, in some people's minds, way of thinking. A more equitable way, I guess is how I would put it.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree, Brian. I, I think that every country, no matter where you look in, in every time frame, every time period, has problems. Every person uh, has issues that whenever we look back in history, it's probably not going to age well. That's certainly the case uh, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And it's certainly going to be the case uh, 100 years from now, whenever we look back at at this period today. And I, I think it's it's rather detrimental uh, to, to try to judge the past by our, our current present standards. And it's much better to judge the past by did they have the foresight? Did they have the understanding of of what was truly important? And they may not have gotten every single issue correct, but was that effort made? Did they try to overcome uh, those issues? And I say that, and certainly in the case of Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers uh, of 1776, I, I think the answer is unequivocally, yes, they did.
0: Okay, got about 30 seconds here, Caleb. Are there blind spots that we have? I mean, we can see the founders' blind spots. Are there some blind spots in our generation that others will look on in the future and go, how could they think that way?
1: Yeah, I think there are. Uh, I think that the the entire COVID era has really exposed a lot of those blind spots that we're still uh, really trying to overcome. Um, and I'm sure there are several others as well that uh, that is too long of a list to, to name. But I think that there are certainly enough individuals today that that have that foresight that can carry that torch on uh, that that Thomas Jefferson uh, established in, in 1776.
0: OK, we are talking with Caleb Franz from Young Voices. Caleb, tell people where they can follow you.
1: Absolutely. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. I also have a show, as I mentioned, Profiles in Liberty, and you can uh, get that wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Cooper Conway back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Cooper, you've actually you've got some pretty promising stuff straight ahead of you, too. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in your life.
2: from Boise State. Um, a little over a month ago now, and I'm uh, headed on to grad school at uh, Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And I'm very, very excited about that and joining the program there.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations. And and that's going to be a little bit of a change of pace from from Idaho, but I think it ought to be a good one for you. I'm looking at an article you've written for the Detroit News about school choice. And for those who weren't watching very closely, the Supreme Court actually handed down a decision recently that uh, has a pretty dramatic impact on school choice. Tell us about that decision.
2: Yeah. So, obviously, everyone's talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but there's been some other interesting um, cases that were decided this year. And one of them, Um, was in Carson, Macon, where the Supreme Court really reaffirmed um, that states cannot exclude religious schools um, from private school choice programs after they um, have created these programs. Uh, And it turns out it's kind of funny. I didn't realize this A little fun fact for the for the listeners is that Maine is the most rural state in the nation in terms of population. Um, You would think it's Alaska, but Alaska, based off population, has most of their people living in um, Anchorage. Well, Maine has a lot of other people living out in the towns and uh, the countryside. And so uh, this means that for a lot of the school districts in Maine, uh, that they don't actually operate a high school. And so they've enacted a tuition assistance program that helps parents send their kids um, to pay for public um, transportation to a school um, or a private high school as well. Uh, it's just that the program um, so thus far hasn't included uh, religious schools, which the Supreme Court said violates the free exercise clause.
0: Interesting. I mean, I I, I got to tell you, honestly, I just learned about this yesterday. Um, not only the Carson v. Macon case, but also uh, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, and I hadn't realized that the Supreme Court had said, look, as long as it's the parents making the choice as to to where their kids go to school, even if there is uh, you know taxpayer money involved in the form of vouchers or education savings account or something, it's okay because it's the parents making the choice, not government.
2: Exactly. If the government stepped in and said, well, we're going to enact this private school choice program, but we're going to force you to go to one certain um, religious sect or school, that's going to be an issue. Um, But really, the parents are the ones that are making the choice. Um, And so, if they wanted to send them to um, a secular private school, um, that's okay. But also, they have to have the opportunity to be able to go to a Christian or Catholic um, school as well.
0: So, let's talk a little bit about the school choice, because I understand this is an idea that is catching a lot of traction, and when some people hear school choice, uh, they react very negatively. The knee-jerk reaction is, oh, you're trying to undo you know, the, the public schools or the, the government-run schools. Talk to me about the benefit of school choice and how it actually expands opportunities for those students.
2: Yeah, well, I think for a long time people people hear school choice and they automatically hear vouchers, right? Uh, vouchers just meaning that you're you're buying a spot in a private school, which is true for a lot of cases and actually has a lot of benefits as well. Um, But the real um, frontier of school choice is what we're seeing in Arizona right now in terms of an education savings account being passed. And so what this means is that the government is allowing a portion of the uh, taxpayer dollars um, to be used, not just on um, private schooling, but also on any uh, private expense that can be used for children. Um, So this could mean uh, private tutoring or online classes or books and curriculum. And so this creates the most flexibility. But also, while we've seen in 11 of the 17 um, studies done on um, students in in these private school choice programs that there's positive effects, we've also seen an overwhelming positive effects for public school students' test scores as well. Um, in 25 of the 27 studies done, and so the competition is forcing um, these public schools to step up their game. And really, uh, there's the common trope that's. Uh, used against school choice is that school choice uh, quotes uh, and I quote defunds the schools but really if the public schools are doing a great job there should be no risk there should be no harm because every single student um, would be put in the best position to learn however if the public school is not doing a great job these parents finally have the, um, the empowerment to be able to leave and choose a better education environment for their child.
0: So competition is what brings better results, and it's not just true within the free market, but this is also true within the arena of education. It seems though that there are some forces within that edu- that education arena that really don't like competition. Who would those forces be?
2: The main force that I that always comes to my mind has to be uh, the teachers unions, and it's not the public school teachers. Um, that really should be getting shouldering the blame for this, but rather the administrators um, that are trying to keep this outdated system um, that's failing many students intact. Uh, Because when students end up going to public schools, um, many of the teachers at these public schools are forced to be unionized and have to pay their union dues. um, While if you go to a private or or charter school, um, these teachers are not unionized and there's not as much money going into the union. Um, And then also when it comes another... Um, opponent would be democratic politicians because union dues overwhelmingly like we're talking 99% um, support democratic politicians who are trying to keep the system in place
0: so are are there growing options in light of uh, the the understanding that look on the one hand the taxpayers can either fund systems, like the the monopoly that is the public school system, or they can put that money towards the students, and and whatever outcome is best for the students. That seems to be the mantra that I'm hearing more of, is fund students rather than systems.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, The idea that the one-size-fits-all public school system is going to work for every single child, I think most people can agree, just doesn't really make sense. every child is unique and has their own special gifts um, that we should be trying to ignite um, and, and help them find. And this doesn't always mean that the public school system is gonna be the best um, solution to do that. And so for a lot of students, it might be going to access um, a certain religious education as we've seen in, in this case, um, or also being able to um, go have small instruction classes with micro schools um, or outdoor schooling. Um, that really provides a little bit of a different approach um, that might be able to help students who are just not really engaged in the classroom as it is right now.
0: So yeah, the ESAs, the education savings accounts you mentioned in your article, um, I'm hearing more and more about this and and in a positive light. and And I guess what's the difference between the the ESA and vouchers? again, for for those who who may be hearing about it for the first time?
2: Yes, so vouchers um, basically you get a, a lump sum of money and that money can go directly to pay um, for a private school um, and that's pretty much the end of the use of the vouchers. Um, they're very helpful, um, but also it's not um, it's pretty limited in terms of flexibility. While ESAs, um, you get that that lump sum of money. So, like in Arizona, for example, it. It's 90% of the uh, taxpayer funds um, for for the state uses per child. So, that's about $7,000. Wow. Now, parents can use, yes, really a, a significant portion of money. Um, so, taxpayers are able to use this um, to pay for not only uh, private school tuition if they want, but also uh, books and curriculum resources. Homeschooling parents are able to use this. Um, And then they can also use it for online classes. And even in some ESA cases, um, if you're able to roll over some of the money, you can pay for um, higher education in the long term.
0: Interesting. By the way, the, the first case you mentioned, the, the recent decision, Carson V. Macon from the Supreme Court, my understanding is that in Maine, because of that uh, that program, those parents who are looking for an alternative for their kids aren't just limited to well, whatever you can find within the state, but they can actually look for schools that are um, you know around the country or if necessary even out of the country if that's what best fits their child's you know educational needs.
2: Interesting. I think that really should be, um, I hadn't heard that to be quite honest with you, but I think that should be something that should be looked at is how can we have, um, how can we get the most high quality options uh, to students? And because what might be a high quality option for one student uh, may not be a high quality option for the other. And so having these choices is really important.
0: Yeah, and, and again, the, the question comes back to, you know, look, are, are parents duty-bound to, to support a monopoly for the public school system, or should they be able to, to make the choices they want to make that best reflect what their child's education requires? Once people can get their minds around that, it seems like uh, that, that flexibility is a lot easier to accept, other than you're just trying to defund the public schools. Tell us where yeah. people can follow you on social media. Where can they find you, Cooper?
2: Yep. They can follow me um, at Cooper Conway. On Twitter, and then they can also find all of my work on the Young Voices page um, with my headshot, uh, Cooper Conway.
0: Okay, Cooper, great to catch up with you. Have a great rest of your summer, and I hope we talk again soon. Thank
2: you. I look forward to it.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Thomas Irwin back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Thomas, let's uh, let's tell our audience just a little bit about yourself for the sake of those meeting you for the first time.
3: Sure, absolutely, Brian. Uh, So as you mentioned, my name is Thomas. Um, I work in Los Angeles. I've lived here on the east side of the city now for eight years I'm married. I have a a son who's uh, about two and a half years old. Um, I work in economic development. So that's looked like a variety of things, you know, helping people with job training, help entrepreneurs kind of get off the ground. Um, And also recently, it's been um, engaging the issue of housing policy. So, um, as some of your listeners may know, we in California have a bit of a housing crisis on our hands. Um, The price of a single family home uh, in the state recently crossed $800,000. Wow. Not a (laughs) mistake. Yeah, median price, right? So there's a lot more expensive than that. Um, so yeah, just engaging, right? Uh, if you're trying to do economic development in the neighborhood, uh, you have to deal with the fact that the cost of living is um, is very high and out of control.
0: What about rent? What's uh, what's the average rent look like?
3: Yeah, that's a great question so here in los angeles the average the median rent i should say uh of a three-bedroom house is over three thousand dollars wow um so that means if you're a family right you know usually right my wife and i we have one child if you if we had two or three children right we probably would need like a three-bedroom size house just to just to kind of breathe um yeah that costs you over three thousand dollars um so obviously there's parts to the city they're more expensive less expensive. But even where I live, where I live is a historically underinvested community, lower-income community. Um, and it's very hard to find a place for less than 2000 often close to $250,000 um, wow. for running a, a house.
0: So, tell me how the state of California is stepping up, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, to help with the, the housing crisis.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Brian, I, I love the air quotes. Um, the state of California has, has I think, recognized Uh, This is a problem, but is still struggling to find solutions that will actually deal with the root of the problem. So uh, my my latest article, uh, which is uh, coming out very soon in The Washington Post, um, details this. So one of the line items in our state budget, which just passed, was called the California Dream for All. Um, And it was a program that's going to invest five hundred million dollars just in this year. So presumably they'll be putting more money into this program years to come. Um, And this is a program that would help subsidize homeownership. So it would uh, give uh, qualified um, users 17% 17% of the purchase price for a house. So you could go out, you could use that money. It's technically a loan, it's unclear, you know, when or if the state will kind of get this money back. The idea is that it would come back to the state, we'll see. Um, but they could go take this money and they could go use it to um, go buy a house, right? Um, the problem is that this misunderstands the fundamental problem, right? So the fundamental problem in California is we don't have enough homes. Um, and there's a lot of economic research that shows when you give people money, especially money that go, that's going to buy a house in an environment where there's not enough house houses, um, it brings up the price of housing, right? Because what happens is uh, there's not more housing that just appears overnight. Uh, people compete with one another and the people who get the subsidy use the subsidy to outbid other people. Right. My wife and I have experienced this. Right. We're looking to buy a house. Um, and there's been lots of times when we have come in with a bid we thought was a reasonable bid. Um, someone else came in and outbid us. Right. Um, if the subsidy program went into effect, um, that would just happen to more people. Right. Um, obviously, it would benefit people who use the subsidy to go buy a house. But you're probably going to pay more for that house. Um, and there's just going to be just as many people who aren't able to get the subsidy and are just left behind.
0: So, for the privileged few, hey, that's going to work out great, but it does nothing to increase the supply. And as I think the last time we talked, Thomas, you were you were pointing out, it's a supply problem. and And, and the real issue yeah. is, how can we build more housing as opposed to, you know, what can government do to control the prices or, in this case, throw money people's way to help them make a purchase?
3: Yeah, that's exactly it, Brian. Um, and this is I think this is a really important point because this is not just a California problem, right? This is a broader thing that you see um, in a lot of policy areas right now. Five percent of land in Los Angeles, you're only allowed to build a single family house. So that means if you're someone who, um, let's say, like, like my wife and I, right, are not working on super uh, well-paying jobs. right? We make good money. We're college educated, uh, but we're not rich. Right. We would love to own a townhouse. We would love to own one half of a duplex, um, something where you share the land and that brings down the price of the house, right? Because you're sharing the land with the neighbor. That's an arrangement we would happily embrace, right? In many states, that's how people buy their first home. Here in Los Angeles, it's really hard because it's illegal in most of the state or sorry, most of the city to do that. Um, San Jose, right? And the barrier is actually worse. It's 94% of the city where these kind of arrangements are banned, um, so, unless you address that fundamental supply problem, uh, Brian, you're not going to fix um, this issue. Um, and I, there's actually a really good uh, paper out there by a think tank in DC called the Niskanis Center. It's called Cost Disease Socialism. And it talks about how many of the biggest problems in American life right now are supply problems, higher education, housing, healthcare. There's not enough doctors, there's not enough housing, um, and there's not enough options for people who want to go to higher education. And unfortunately, there's kind of a bipartisan consensus right now. Um, that the best way to deal with that is to throw money at the problem, right? You see this on the left with higher education, right? Uh, Hey, we need free college for everyone. We need to forgive student loans. You see this on the right with like the gas tax holiday that's being proposed by a lot of people right now. Um, Hey, there's a supply shortage of gas people's idea for solving that problem is, hey, let's subsidize gas by not taxing it, right? Well, guess what? That's just going to drive up the price of gas uh, because there's still going to be a limited supply and consumers are going to compete with another for that limited supply. Um, And housing, it's been a bipartisan thing for as long as America has existed that, hey, We're going to throw more money at people so they can buy houses. But unless you address the supply problem, it's really not going to fix the fundamental problem.
0: So talk to us about some of the policy options that exist to to help drive down the cost of housing and and hopefully alleviate some of that supply problem.
3: Yeah. So the good news, Brian, is um, there are policy options that are proven to do this. Last time um, I was on air, I mentioned the idea of removing parking minimums. Right. So I know parking. Parking minimums can be a controversial thing, but it is proven Um, cities uh, like Minneapolis that have dropped parking minimums. Minneapolis this year actually saw its rents go down um, for the first time in a long time. Um, And and there's been a recent um, work done around that. One of the big reasons for that is they dropped parking minimums across the city. They made it possible to build new housing. And if the people who wanted to buy that housing or wanted to rent that housing uh, didn't want parking, the developer is not forced by the state. To do that, so here in California, we have a bill, um, the state legislature, that would drop parking minimums in um, high transit cities like Los Angeles throughout the state. Um, there's another bill um, uh, that I think would be excellent that would allow housing in commercial zones. So something you're seeing right now is with remote work, less people are going into the office. You have a lot of offices in downtown Los Angeles that are underutilized. Uh, developers are legally barred from turning those buildings into housing. That. You know really doesn't make sense um with COVID, right we've seen permanent changes to how we work we should allow developers to be flexible with how they treat their properties and adapt to those changes right by creating the housing we need um, and less less office space that we just don't need as much
0: can you help me understand um, why was that uh, prohibition on uh on you know residential accommodations in in uh, commercial areas ever uh, put in place in in the first place i i I, I'm sure there's a simple explanation, but it seems like with a problem like this, it's an explanation that that may have done its good and should be discarded.
3: Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Um, so, Brian, you to understand that um, there have been whole books written on the topic of zoning, right, and the origins of zoning. Um, it, in most people's estimation, right, the reason we have zoning, so separating out commercial buildings from residential buildings, is this idea that we want to keep residents away from what might be called noxious or toxic uses, right? We don't want um, a smelting uh, plant in the middle of a neighborhood or next to a kindergarten. Um, We don't want um, someone who's fixing cars, right? um, In the middle of a neighborhood, Um, that's happened sometimes and it's it's unpleasant for their neighbors. Um, so, So, you know, in theory, right? We have these zoning prohibitions that say, hey, you have to have commercial office space over here and you have to have housing over here to prevent those kinds of situations. That's the theory in practice, um, zoning is a great tool for uh, socioeconomic exclusion and it's a great tool for people to stop economic development. Um, There's a great book that recently came out um, by uh, a fellow uh, Young Voices contributor named Nolan Gray. It's called Arbitrary Lines. I would highly recommend it. I'm reading through it right now. And in it, he talks about how actually in California, uh, the city of Berkeley was one of the first cities uh, to come up with the idea of single family zoning. And they actually did it um, partially because the people wanted to be able to exclude Chinese laundromats from residential areas. He also points to the city of New York, where you had uh, department stores that didn't want lower income clientele. At that time, it was mostly um, Jewish uh, uh, workers who, who worked in garment factories in New York City. They didn't want them coming into their high end retail stores and scaring off higher income um customers. So it was this idea of we can actually use zoning um, to perpetuate these kind of socioeconomic exclusion. Um, and, and it's something that cities across the United States have, have uh, embraced. Um, some of that's been federal government guidance. Um, this goes back to the 20s. There was guidance that said, hey, it's really important for all cities in America to, to get zoning. We're going to tie this to certain dollars coming the federal government. Uh, but it's really wrecked havoc on our cities. And, and when you look at the issue of housing, um, it, you really can't solve the problem by subsidizing ownership, you can solve the problem by starting to roll back some of these zoning regulations um, that have been really misguided and really misapplied in a lot of places.
0: So instead of just treating the symptoms, get to the root causes. Uh, Thomas, tell, tell everybody where they can follow you on social media, where they can follow your writings as well.
3: Yeah, so uh, my article is coming out in the Washington Post, hopefully in the next few days. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at CoachThomasLA. Um, you can also follow me on Substack. I, I repost my, my op-eds there, and as well as some of my other thoughts. Um, that's uh, the pontification, thomaspontifications.substack.com. So I'd love to uh, have you all follow me. And Thank you, Brian, for having me on.
0: Welcome back. This is our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to welcome Alexander Salter back to the program. He is an associate professor at Texas Tech University as well as a Young Voices contributor. Alex, great to catch up with you once again.
4: Brian, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having
0: me. I know you've been a busy guy here lately. It probably has something to do with the fact that uh, more and more people are starting to realize that inflation is a reality. In fact, I think it's a reality that all of us are experiencing at some level. Um, before we get going too far here, let's talk a little bit about what inflation is, maybe like kind of a baseline definition, and then we can talk about a letter to the editor that you sent to The Wall Street Journal about how Biden could have tried to ward off inflation.
4: Sounds good. So as a general definition of inflation, most economists are content to just state it's an increase in percentage terms in all the economy's prices. So it's important that all prices have to be going up at once. Now, obviously, not all prices are going to go up at the same rate, but we're very careful to distinguish inflation from specific price changes for specific goods and services. So look at the automobile industry. If the price of cars is going up, but other goods and services aren't getting more expensive, that's not inflation. That's the change in a a relative price of some specific good or service. For inflation, which really means the depreciation and the purchasing power of the monetary unit, the dollar in our case, it should be that everything is getting more expensive. And so we have multiple ways of measuring this we pay attention to various price indices that track a basket or collection of goods and services over time you're probably familiar with the consumer price index that's the more popular the most popular one Uh, another important one that tracks consumers prices is called the personal consumption consumption expenditures index that one's important because that's what the federal reserve is actually paying attention to that's the price index that the fed targets in terms of determining its monetary policies so that's going to be one that's uh, that's particularly policy relevant.
0: Okay, you are the guy to ask for these these kinds of questions too. Now let's talk about uh, some of the the talk we hear about. Uh, you know, when when the economy's good, I notice uh, most politicians, especially presidents, love to take credit for. Look how good the economy's doing. I did that. When things are going not so good, such as we're seeing right now. Uh, it has to be something else. I think we blamed Putin and and uh, even the gas station owners, I think, kind of caught some shade over the weekend. Talk to me about what the president could have done to try to ward off inflation.
4: Well, in general, we definitely uh, blame presidents too much when the economy is not doing well and give them too much credit when it actually is healthy. That's sort of a national habit of ours, and it would be good if we would sort of break ourselves of that habit to the extent that we can. That being said, I think given the current extraordinary circumstances and the rather unusual policies of the last couple of years, the inflation buck really does stop on President Biden's desk. He's not the only one responsible, but I think he has done some things that really contributed to pricing pressures and made them worse than they otherwise would be. Obviously, he signed a very big coronavirus relief package into law long after there was any economic turmoil that needed combating. By itself, government spending isn't really enough to drive up inflation. That just sort of means that Uncle Uncle Sam is taking a larger slice of the economic pie. That just means there's less pie for everybody else. In this case, though, because all that new deficit government spending was, again, debt financed. And the central bank, the Federal Reserve, was engaged in an aggressive bond buying program because they were still stimulating the economy for too long after things recovered. Loose fiscal policy really opened the door for loose monetary policy. And in conjunction, the two of them really did contribute to this excess demand problem that we have right now, which is one of the reasons why we're seeing the dollar lose its purchasing power so quickly at the fastest rate in four years. So It's not appropriate, I think, to say that President Biden is solely responsible or even uniquely responsible, but among the players who bear blame for the fact that workers are losing purchasing power of their wages, for the fact that asset values are not doing so great right now, yeah, the president does deserve some blame for that. And I think that we do need to be clear about that.
0: What are some of the specific policies that he or any other president, for that matter, could look to as as a way to uh ease what we're seeing right now in terms of depreciation of uh, the purchasing power of the dollar?
4: If you want to tackle inflation, there's really two sides of the economy you've got to work on. The more familiar one is the demand side, which really has to do with the total amount of liquidity, purchasing power in the economy. Normally, that's up to the central bank. But, again, excessively accommodative debt conditions can make it easier for the central bank to engage in money mischief right the central bank usually conducts monetary policy by buying and selling assets one of their favorite assets is government bonds they might be uh, might feel compelled or pressured by politicians to help accommodate the debt market to make borrowing and spending easier i think some of that is what we've seen going on so the central bank deserves blame too but they got some wiggle room to run because of what president biden did in terms of spending unnecessarily large amounts of money so he could have signed that. you could have not signed that big old spending bill into law that he's justly uh, deserving some blame for. There's also the supply side, and here it comes down to loosening regulatory constraints. We know that the president has made domestic energy production a lot harder since he got into office, and energy prices are one of the things that we've seen increase markedly over the past couple of years. Yes, the war in Ukraine matters a lot. Yes, lingering supply chain bottlenecks from the pandemic also matter. But in the last decade we've seen America go from being the single largest energy importer in the world to being almost quote-unquote self-sufficient in energy in the sense that when we had those technological improvements in refining and extracting shale oil that was a huge energy boom for this country right that that really changed the energy circumstances we find ourselves in and the various policies that the president has engaged in unilaterally right this is all stuff that he's doing through executive orders has made refining and producing oil much harder in this country, so much so that a lot of refineries are they are working overtime, right? but they're not investing in any new capacity. And when you ask them why, they say, because we don't think it's going to be a profitable investment based on the things that this administration are doing. We expect that we're just going to get all of our profits regulated out of existence. And it's completely unreasonable to expect producers to make significant capital investments if they don't think that they're actually going to see a return on that investment. So when it comes to expanding demand too fast and constricting supply, those are two things that the president did that he should not have done. If he had governed more as a centrist, which is what he promised on the campaign trail, I think that we would not have seen him pursue a lot of these policies that he has pursued. Uh, I don't think he's getting the best advice from his advisors.
0: Now, you point out in your letter to the editor in The Wall Street Journal that uh, there's still time. He could, he could make a legacy-saving pivot. I have to ask you, though, Alex, given what the president has done in the course of you know, the roughly year and a half that he's been in office, does that seem likely?
4: I think it's likely. I continue to hold out hopes that it's possible for better or for worse, Joe Biden is the president. I want him to govern well for the sake of the nation. So I really hope he does turn it around and have a Bill Clinton-esque moment, right? Clinton also, during the first couple of years of his administration, looked like he wanted to pursue strongly left-wing priorities, uh, got handed a reality check in the midterm elections when uh, Newt Gingrich's faction rose to power and actually moderated, right? And so after that, you saw a lot of the Clinton signature legislation uh, that Congress actually passed that he cooperated with, and I think that that largely saved his presidency. Something similar to that could happen here. You could see the president observing the shellacking that Democrats are inevitably going to get in the midterm, pivot to the middle, basically stop regulating oil profits out of existence, stop supporting massive deficit spending that gives the Federal Reserve more wiggle room to pursue irresponsible monetary policy. Of course, the Fed seems to have finally gotten wise to the fact that inflation is here to stay, and so they're beginning to tighten a little bit, which could be promising. Again, it really all depends on whether the president has the discipline to actually govern in the way that he promised on the campaign trail. At least for his first 18 months, he seems like he's willing to give the left-wing faction of his own party free reign to pursue their policy agenda. And that's just not the Joe Biden who spent the last 50 years in public life. I think that we had a right to expect a very different policy agenda, and I think that we should hope for that now.
0: Okay, we've got about a minute left here, Alex. Talk to me about what you see uh, as, as far as the economy. Um, I, I hear a lot of people saying tougher or at least tighter, you know, economic times are coming. Do you see that long term? Is it going to be short term? What does it look like from your vantage point?
4: I think inflation is going to be elevated for a while longer, and I think it's going to continue to outpace wage gains. So that's something that workers are obviously not going to be overly fond about. But you know what? When you look at the fundamental, the fundamental features of labor markets, they actually look okay. Unemployment is not going up very much. Right? We still have near record low unemployment, and so this is occurring while asset markets are frankly not doing so well. So we have some sort—we have like a bunch of contrary indicators here. Usually, you would expect if there are actual fears of a recession coming along, and a lot of commentators say there are, based on what they anticipate to happen to quarter to GDP. When you expect recessionary pressures to manifest in the economy, you expect unemployment to go up. And just so far, we're not seeing significant rises in joblessness. So uh, back in the 1970s and the 1980s, it was common to worry about the misery index, right, which is the sum total of the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. And inflation's still pretty bad right now. Again, we're at 40-year highs, but unemployment looks okay, actually. So, we might be in for some lean times, but I'm not convinced that we're going to have a true recession, or even if we do, if it's going to look anything like the painful recessions of yesteryear.
0: Okay. Once again, we're talking with Associate Professor Alexander Salter from Texas Tech University. He's also a Young Voices contributor. Alex, always love to catch up with you. Thanks so much for your time.
4: Thanks, Brian. It was fun.